Now we're going to be going through the last passage in the book of Genesis. Not just our last passage, but the last passage of the book. So we'll be in Genesis chapter 50. In a moment, I'll read through uh, verses 15 through 26, the last 12 verses of the book. Um, and just as a, a, quick, a quick thing to say, um, for some of you, even if you were here last week in, in the passage that Gary went through, when I read this, you, you might be struck with, uh, we're kind of jumping into this. I'm not sure I, I know how we got from last week to this week. Um, that's going to be okay. I'll, I'll catch us up later on. I'll, I'll kind of explain how we got here. But I think that there's value in us just reading the passage, allowing the passage to be read for us so that we experience God's word before we walk through it in the sermon. So if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen as the verses go up there. But Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead... They said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also, the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land, to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. This is God's word. And it it might be striking as we walk through this for us just to take a moment to to remember that when it comes to a story, the ending can be really significant. If you're reading a book, if you're watching a movie, the ending, the final line or the final segment of the story can end up telling you a lot about how you're meant to understand the entire story. And it's important to remember, as we're going through this right now, we are finishing the story of Joseph. We spent four weeks, this is the fourth week, of focusing in on the life of Joseph. And it's an amazing story. It's a story of the 11th of 12 brothers, and he ends up being dad's favorite, and then he goes from being dad's favorite to being, in, uh, to being thrown into a pit and then sold into slavery and then ending up in prison because of a false accusation. And then he moves from that low point to becoming the second in charge of the whole land of Egypt and saving Egypt and surrounding people from a horrific famine that came on the land. 
And then if you were here last week, Gary brought us through the passage where Joseph experiences a powerful reconciliation with his brothers. The brothers who sold him into slavery end up coming to the land and they end up being reconciled to one another. This is the last part of the Joseph story, but this is not just the last part of the Joseph story. This is the last part of the whole story of Genesis. And it would be easy to look at Genesis and say, Genesis is a whole bunch of stories. And that's true, but Genesis is also one story. There's a unity to this. There's something that the author in crafting this is showing us beginning to end. It's not just a series of unrelated stories. It's one story. And in the big picture, it's the story about God and who he is. It's a story about us as human beings and who we are. It's about our purpose. It's about the world that we're in. And it starts all the way back with God, the sovereign God, the powerful God of the universe, speaking things into creation, saying the word and stars show up and oceans show up and mountains show up and human beings receive the breath of life from it. And then it's a story about the first man and the first woman falling because of their sin and disobedience and bringing curse into the world. And then the downward spiral of Cain and Abel, and we see a brother killing his own brother. We move into God flooding the world because things have become so horrific and violent. We move towards man's foolish pride in the Tower of Babel, where mankind thinks we can ascend to God, and God shows how easily he can thwart that. And then what God shows us is not only that man can't ascend to God, but God shows us that he is going to reach down to us. And he does that specifically by calling a man named Abraham out of obscurity and saying, through Abraham and through his descendants, I am going to show myself and bless the entire world. And we get to see the walk of faith of Abraham. And then we get to see the walk of faith of his son, Isaac. And then the walk of faith of his son, Jacob. And then we get to Joseph in the story that we're in. This passage is not just the end of the Joseph segment of the story. It brings a conclusion to this entire series, this entire book that we've been going through. And, and, and just to try to set the table, part of what we experience in Genesis is the question of how do we live in a world where there is a God who wants to be known and is calling us to live in light of who he is? How do we live in light of that in light of the fact that we live in a world that is broken and fraught with problems. And what Joseph shows us in this final passage is that there is a quality of God that allows us to reframe how we look at our problems. And the specific quality of God that's brought out in this passage is God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty reframes our view of our problems. Now, I recognize sovereignty is not an everyday word for most of us. But just look at the word for a moment. You can even see within the word sovereignty is the word reign. God's sovereignty has to do with the idea that he is the king that he is in charge, that he is all powerful, that the God revealed to us in Genesis isn't just a God trying his best, but the God revealed to us in Genesis is the God who is ordering the events of life. God's sovereignty reframes our view 
of our problems. And in these 12 verses that we already read through, what we get to see is Joseph deal with two pretty profound problems, but he's able to deal with them differently because of the sovereignty of God. And we'll walk through those problems. The first one is in verses 15 through 21. And the first problem that we encounter is the problem of evil and specifically of forgiveness in the face of evil. Now with Joseph, forgiveness is a theme through his life. It was a major theme of what Gary taught us from chapter 45 last week. But it's a theme again here because verse 15 begins our passage by saying, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did him? And just as a reminder, the wrongs they did him, this was not just some sibling rivalry, normal brother problems. It's not a normal brother problem when you throw your brother in a pit, sell him off into slavery, and then tell dad a wild animal killed him. This is not average problems. They really wronged him. And and you see them reference the idea that Jacob is now dead. That happens at the beginning of chapter 50. That, That basically what happens between chapters 45 and 50 is that the Israelites all end up coming down to the land that Joseph has rescued because he's prepared them for the famine that they're facing. And the Israelites settle down in the land of Egypt. Jacob ends up blessing all of his different sons. And then in chapter 50, he ends up dying and they mourn for him. And then after the mourning is done, the brothers kind of look at one another and they say, now, wait a second, dad's dead now. What if Joseph was only nice to us because he didn't want to displease dad? What if now that dad's dead, we're about to have the hammer fall down on us? Now, as a note, by the way that the Bible unfolds, it appears that there's about 17 years between what we saw, the forgiveness that Joseph gave in chapter 45 and what we encounter in chapter 50. 17 years, there is not a single hint from Joseph that he's holding a grudge. There's no clue of that at all, but the brothers are still concerned. And so what they do is they hatch a plan. They say, we're gonna send him a note and uh, then we're gonna go to him, but first we'll send him a note. We don't know this for sure. Almost certainly they made this up. There's no evidence that Jacob gave them his final wishes before he died. Almost certainly they made this up and they send Joseph a note and they say, here's what dad said. Dad said to forgive us. Dad said his last wish was just to make sure you didn't take revenge on us. And they even buttered up. They say, here's what your father said. And then at the end of it, they say, so please forgive the servants of the God of your father. And then afterwards, it says that at the end of verse 17, it says that Joseph wept. And while it doesn't explain why he wept, it seems pretty clear from the passage as it unfolds, the reason that Joseph is weeping is because he is so grieved that the forgiveness he extended so long before still hasn't taken root. He really has let all of this go, but his brothers aren't sure. And so after he reads the note, they ended up coming into the room. They bow down before him. They say, we're your slaves. In essence saying, if you want to make us slaves and we still get to live, we'll take it. They recognize that they don't deserve any better than that. And they don't deserve any better than that. And just think about this for a second. The reason for Joseph forgiving them certainly can't be that they're worthy of forgiveness. There's not even a clear part in Genesis where they apologize for what they've done. 
These are not people who are portrayed as being worthy. And here what they do in chapter 50 is they seemingly make up a story to manipulate Joseph. These guys shouldn't be forgiven because they're good guys. There's got to be a deeper reason why forgiveness would come to them. And I want you just to look at the powerful thing that Joseph says in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? What a question. Am I in the place of God? You know what Joseph is implying by this question? What he's implying is for me to take revenge on you guys would be me putting myself in the place of God. When you take your own revenge, you are shoving God off the throne, climbing onto it yourself and saying, I'll take it from here. Joseph says, am I in the place of God? The Apostle Paul reinforces this in in Romans chapter 12. Towards the end of the chapter, he says, brothers and sisters, don't take your own revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. And what he's saying when he says that is, yeah, there is judgment. God is going to sort all things out. And if you're looking at the world and saying somebody's got to take revenge because it's just not fair. Paul says, you know, God's going to take care of that. It's not your job. Don't take your own revenge. And Joseph reinforces that. He says, am I in the place of God? God has a job description. I have a job description. I'm not taking God's job. Joseph is reinforcing the idea that he embraces that he is the creature and God's the creator. That he's the servant and God's the master. That he is walking by faith while God gives him the instructions on how to walk by faith. Joseph says, am I in the place of God? Just think, there are other areas in our life where it would be good for us to ask ourselves that question before we act. And we can just start with the one that this passage is about. We can start with the question of forgiveness because I'm just going to bet there's many of us in this room that the call to forgive in some way is irking us. We're bothered by the idea that there's somebody who doesn't deserve it who we're called to forgive or there's some recent wrong that you've experienced and you're not sure you want to forgive or there's some deep wrong from years and years where you were consistently wronged by somebody. Maybe they haven't even apologized and you're called to forgive and you're saying, I just don't think I should do that. I don't think I can let them get away with it. I think they need to have a reckoning. And the question is, are you in the place of God Let me tell you something else about how profound this question is. Um, I want you to think back. Again, this is not just the ending to the Joseph story. This is the ending to Genesis. I want you to think back towards the beginning of Genesis. I want you to think about how we got into the mess we got into. Why all the problems came into the world. Why this downward spiral came. It came because our first parents ended up rebelling against God. And I want you to think about what the serpent said in his final words of temptation in Genesis chapter three, verse five. He said, if you eat from this fruit, you will be like God. Some of you know it, like God. This was the appeal. Adam, Eve, you shouldn't be satisfied with being creatures. You shouldn't be satisfied with being servants. You shouldn't be satisfied with walking by faith. You shouldn't be satisfied that you're here as human beings and God's up there running things. You should want to be like 
God. That's what got us into this mess. And we come all the way to Genesis 50 and we see a man of faith asking the question, am I in the place of God? Joseph is saying, I don't want that job. I'm going to be a creature. I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to walk by faith. I am not going to try to grab the reins. And when you think of the Adam and Eve statement, it, it even reminds us. This question where Joseph says, am I in the place of God? It's a good question for us to ask when we want to take revenge. It's also a good question for us to ask when we want to act disobedient to how God has called us to live. You know, Karina and I have three sons and we have a question that we ask um, frequently in our home. And the question is, do you have a better idea than obedience? And you can start to imagine why we would ask this question. <laughs> the reason we ask this question is because sometimes we will tell one of our kids to do something and clearly what they think is, if mom and dad really understood they wouldn't have asked me to do this. So I'm going to go ahead and do what they should have asked me to do had they known the full situation. And we, I, I promise, I just did this yesterday with one of our sons. Do you have a better idea than obedience? By the way, spoiler alert, the answer is always no. <laughs> you do not have a better idea than obedience. If that's true in a family, how much more profoundly true is that with the God of the universe? You do not have a better idea than obedience. It's laughable. And yet in the United States, and I shouldn't say that, it's not just in the United States, but I think it's especially prevalent in the United States. We have a disease that seems especially contagious here, and that disease is that every single one of us thinks that we are the exception. We all think normally, yeah, normally what God is saying is what you should do, but you don't know the situation I'm in. You know, normally you shouldn't lie, but you don't know how cornered I was. Normally I wouldn't have said that harsh thing, but you don't know how provoked I was. You know what? I, I agree. Normally you shouldn't get divorced, but you don't know how miserable I am. Normally, abortion wouldn't be a good choice and isn't something that I would do, but you don't know how alone I am. Yeah, I agree. Normally, sex outside of marriage is wrong, but you don't know how in love we are. You don't know how committed we are to each other. You do not have a better idea than obedience. This is the all-wise, sovereign God of the universe. And when you begin to think that you have a better idea, you need to ask yourself the question that Joseph is asking right here. Am I in the place of God? Maybe it's time to step back and allow the all-wise God of the universe to do his job while we do our job by trusting him and walking by faith. And here's Joseph, more wronged, more evil has come against him than most of us will ever experience. And he says, I'm not going to get back at you guys. And it's not because they deserve forgiveness. Look at what he says in verses 20 and 21. You intended to harm me. Joseph isn't saying, you guys didn't mean to do anything wrong. They did. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph says, I'm not going to get back at you. 
After all, you guys seemed to be under the impression that you have the power to ruin my life. But guess what? It turned out that you were impotent in that regard. It turned out that you did not have the power to do what you thought you could do. You thought you were going to ruin my life. And look what happened. Look at the people being saved. Look at the Egyptians who have their lives because I was here in the midst of the famine. Look at all of you and our extended family who are still alive and survived the famine because I was here. It says, I'm not going to take revenge on you because I've embraced the idea that even in your attempts to ruin my life, you weren't powerful enough to do it because God is the one really in charge. And I want to say something that, that for some of you will probably be difficult, but, but I think that it's really, really important to say. Joseph here is not saying God made the best of a bad situation. That's what we would be tempted to believe that he's saying. That God is saying to the brothers, hey, here's the, here's the deal. You threw lemons at me, but you know what God did? God took those lemons and he made lemonade. God is the kind of God that can take a bad situation and say, this is a bad situation, but I can make something good of it. That's not what Joseph is saying. That's what we would be tempted to think he's saying. It's actually not what he's saying. What Joseph is saying is, you thought you were in charge, but God was in charge. Joseph is not saying, I'm here because you did something bad and this was the best good that God could bring out of your bad situation. Joseph is saying, God wanted me here. In fact, in chapter 45, when he speaks to his brothers, he says, you didn't send me, God sent me. Joseph's belief is not that there's a God up there who is gonna do his best to make lemonade out of the lemons that we face. Saying people who actually think that they can do harm to us can't do ultimate harm to us because God is ultimately in charge. And then you can look at it and say, well, well, wait a second. Are you saying that God wanted Joseph's brothers to do this bad thing? God wanted Potiphar's wife to falsely accuse him? God wanted the, the baker to forget about him so that he ended up in, in prison for all that time? That God wanted those evil things to happen? And, and in a sense, this is part of the paradox of all this where we say, well, well, no, in a sense, no. Like God doesn't want evil things to happen. But God did not look at those evil things and say, wow, those are really bad. What am I gonna do now? God was in charge the entire time. And so you might right now be at a place in your life where you're looking at different hard things that you've experienced and you might be tempted to believe that you're in a bad situation that God has to make the best of. And the hope that I wanna give you is you are not in a bad situation that God's gonna make the best of. You are exactly where God wants you to be. You are exactly where God determined you to be. And that means that there is no part of God's plan for your life that has in any way been thwarted, even by evil that you've experienced at the hands of others. That is how powerful God is. The sovereignty of God. Don't forgive other people because they deserve it. Forgive other people because they are unable to thwart God's plan for your life. And as another, by the way, Joseph did not have the power to fix his relationship with his brothers. Um, I, I'm pretty doubtful that they had this joyous relationship even after this. He did not have the power to unilaterally say, we're gonna have joy and trust in our relationship. He can't do that, but you know what he can do? He can make sure that he is not owned by bitterness. And look how free this man is. Saying, I'm not mad at you. You tried to do something, but look what God did. 
He is free from bitterness. And I said this a, a few weeks ago, but it's worth saying again because it's, it's my favorite quote on bitterness outside of what the scripture says. Bitterness is drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. <laughs> Don't give yourself over to bitterness. And the reason is not because what they tried to do to you isn't that bad. It may have been that bad. But the reason is because even if they did their worst, they are not strong enough to thwart God's good plan for your life. We show a sign to the world when we forgive in the midst of evil. But we see a second problem in the final verses of Genesis. And I'll just tell you right now, the second problem is actually worse than the first problem. Evil is a big problem, but the second problem that we see Joseph facing is death. And it's hard to think of a problem that's bigger than death. We see forgiveness in the face of evil, and then we see hope in the face of death. And so verses 22 and 23 just tell us a little bit about the rest of Joseph's life. He ends up living to be 110 years old, which is significant because for the Egyptians, that was actually, in, in their beliefs, the ideal age to live to be. So he lives to be 110 years old. It talks about Ephraim and Manasseh are his children. He gets to see future generations of them born. And then in verses 24 and 25, we get the last words from Joseph. And the last words from Joseph end up being a promise that he reminds his people of, and then a promise that he makes them give to him. So verse 24 says, Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph says, all right, I'm about to die. But remember, Egypt is not the final landing place for the Jews. Egypt is not our final destination. God's made promises. So at some point in the future, God is going to come and save you from this land and bring you into the promised land. He reminds them of that promise. And then in verse 25, he makes them make a promise. It says, and Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. It says, I'm not going to be alive for it, but you're going to take my bones with me because I don't even want my bones resting in this land. I want them in the promised land. Then the last word in Genesis, the last verse. So Joseph died at the age of 110 and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. And would you have guessed at the beginning of the book that the last four words of the book of Genesis are a coffin in Egypt? It's a strange ending to the book. And it's a strange ending to the book because it clearly implies this may be the ending to the book of Genesis, but this is clearly not the end of the story. This story can't end with a coffin in Egypt. And Joseph shows a sign that the story doesn't end with a coffin in Egypt because he is a dead. Think about this for a second. This is so profound. Joseph was dying. He is a dying man. And you know what he's thinking about? He's thinking about the future. When you're dying, you would assume the only thing you have to think about is the past. You're thinking about your regrets. You're thinking about the best times. You're having these vivid memories. Joseph is dying. And you know what he's thinking about? He's thinking about the future. Only a person with hope could be thinking about the future when they're dying. In fact, there's a lot of positive things that could be said about Joseph. He, he did a lot of amazing things by faith. 
And there's a book in the New Testament called Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 11, there's these great statements about how the men and women in the Old Testament lived by faith. And there's one verse given to Joseph. And you can think of Joseph's life and you can think, oh, it's, it's probably going to say by faith, even when he was thrown into a cistern, he still knew that God would work in his life. Or by faith, even when he was falsely accused and he was in a prison, he still had hope. Or by faith, he ended up saving all the people because he wisely did what God called him to do. But it doesn't say any of those things. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22, the one verse that we get about Joseph says this. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Take that in for a minute. The author of Hebrews is saying, all right, I want to highlight the most significant thing that Joseph did by faith. And what he basically says is that when Joseph was dying, he was thinking about the future. And in case you're concerned, you can read Exodus chapter 13, 19. And when Moses left, led the people out of Egypt, they took Joseph's bones with them. Joseph's story wasn't done. And just think about this. We are, this might be bad news, we are dying men and dying women. You may not have a terminal diagnosis that tells you when it's going to happen, but you are a dying man or a dying woman. And what a sign it would be to the world around us if we conducted ourselves as dying men and women who are thinking about the future, who are acting with hope. Because here's Joseph and he says basically this, all right, here's the deal. I'm about to die, but in the future, God is going to send a savior. He didn't know his name, but his name was going to be Moses. And Moses was going to come and he was going to save the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. He's going to take you out of here, out of this slavery, and he's going to bring you into the promised land. I'm not going to be there for it. I'm dying in faith, but God is going to send a savior and he's going to save you from this slavery. And however much Joseph knew, if he really understood the full story, he could have said, but even that is just going to be a whisper because God's going to send somebody else. God's going to send somebody not to save you from physical slavery in Egypt. God is going to send somebody to save you from the eternal slavery to sin and death and condemnation and estrangement from God. God is not just going to send Moses. God is going to send Jesus. God is going to send the ultimate savior. In fact, he is going to give his life to bring you out of slavery. And when he raises himself, when he is raised from the dead, he's not just going to bring you into the promised land. He is going to bring you into the family of God. And if you wanted to even take it one step further than that, you could say this. We all live on the other side of the Exodus. It happened in the past. We all live on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus. That's also in our past. But there's something that isn't in our past. We are dying men and dying women who say one day God is going to send back that savior. He is going to get our bodies out of the grave and he's going to save us not just spiritually, but physically into the eternal life of the new creation. We are still anticipating a savior. We are dying men and dying women who die thinking about the future. Evil cannot thwart 
God's sovereignty. Death cannot thwart God's sovereignty. And for some of you, maybe even recently, you've been dealing with the trauma of death. Maybe even for some of you, you're, you're looking at yourself and you're saying, I don't know how much longer I have here. I don't know my future. And none of us know our future. And the reality of death, it's, it's horrific. It's never meant to be part of God's original creation. And we grieve because of death and, and we grieve the anticipation of death. But even death doesn't get to steal our hope because even death doesn't separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. We got problems, but God's sovereignty reframes how we view our problems. And that means we get to be assigned to the world around us. This is not just about our self-help. This is about us showing the world around us the newness that Jesus brings. And if you want people around you to see the newness of Jesus brings, one of the powerful things that's going to bring that is that when you are sinned against in horrible ways and they see that you are not owned by that, Your life is not hijacked by that. In fact, you're able to exercise forgiveness to people that absolutely don't deserve it. And the reason you're able to do that is because you know, even in their acts of evil, they cannot thwart the sovereign God who's truly in charge. And you know what else will make you assigned to the people around you? If even when you're staring down death, whether it's your own or the death of somebody you love, or God forbid, the death of a child, that when you are staring down death, you know death doesn't get the last word. You know this story doesn't end in a coffin in Egypt, and it doesn't end in a tomb with a stone rolled in front of it. This story ends in the new creation that Jesus brings, and even death doesn't steal our hope. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank you that you give us hope in the midst of death. Thank you that you have given us forgiveness and you empower us to forgive others even in the face of evil. Thank you that we don't have to be owned by believing that our lives have been thwarted. No one can thwart what you do. Thank you that you are not silent when it comes to our fears and when it comes to the concerns and the problems that we face. Thank you that we're not alone and that you are a God who speaks. Father, I pray that you set us free from our fears and from our bitterness. I pray that you put us on display for the world around us to show people the Jesus who sets us free from bitterness and sets us free from the fear of death. Father, I pray that you lead us to shine the light so brightly that Jesus is put on full display. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray especially for those who are in the heat of the time where they're dealing with sins that have been committed against them or they're they're dealing with the temptation to bitterness. They're dealing with the pain of death. I pray that you lead them by the comfort of your sovereignty to reframe and to walk in freedom and to be assigned to the world. I pray this in the name of our, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.